welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is the fifth episode in our year-long series about the skills of historical thinking, and today our focus is on multiple perspectives. Putting it in the form of a question, it's when a historian asks herself, how might others plausibly interpret this evidence differently? To do that, we must consider more than one point of view and then either refute or concede objections to our argument. The theme of multiple perspectives takes us to a strange and interesting landscape where history, logic, phenomenology, and ethics meet and hopefully assist one another. Touring that landscape with me today are two frequent guests of this podcast. Lori Glover is the John Francis Bannon Endowed Chair in the Department of History at St. Louis University. Her last appearance on the podcast was in January when she talked about her most recent book, Eliza Lucas Pinckney, An Independent Woman in the Age of Revolution. Bob Elder is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, and we most recently talked about his book, Calhoun, American Heretic. Lori and Bob, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Great to be here. Yes. So I think of the two of you as the, most recently, as the South Carolinian biographers, So, which gives us a very rich field for multiple perspectives uh, since... Uh, What's the what's the James Pettigrew line? Uh, too large for a too small for a public, too large for an insane asylum. Um, exactly. That's right. South Carolina, <laughs> South Carolina always provides us with a diversity of viewpoints, even from within it. So, first of all, let's start with you, Lori. Uh, how would you define multiple perspectives? Other than that, I did perfectly well. But how have you defined it? To like when you teach it. So I think of history as um, essentially rooted in multiple perspectives. Um, when I was an mm. undergraduate many years ago at the University of North Alabama, my mentor always wrote on the board at the beginning of every class, G-H-I-I-H, good history is intellectual history. And he meant by that not, <laughs> not the history of ideas or the history of intellectuals, but it had a very specific meaning. Um, and my whole introduction to the field of history came through him. And what he taught us is that to be a good historian, you have to understand the culture and the mindset and the points of view of the people you are studying, uh, whether they are admirable and honorable or graven and despicable, that you really cannot understand the past without um, a, a deep consideration of and appreciation of the points of view of individuals. So I suppose I have always thought about history being about multiple perspectives. That's that's very evocative. But I, rather than babble on about how, my realization, I'll get to that. Uh, we'll go with Bob. Bob, how have you how have you thought uh, uh, about multiple perspectives, and and from when? I like that that origin story that Laurie just told. Yeah, I think. Um... I think I, I I think I got into history because I had the realization at some point um, that every event or argument had two sides, right? Mm -hmm. That um, I grew up in a family that discussed ideas all the time, and one of the standard discussions would be, 
you know, to, to, to take an event or, a, or a, an idea and say, okay, why are people arguing for this or against it? And I think in, uh, I got into history because I found a discipline that sort of let me do that all the time. And I think that was what originally drew me to history. Um, so I, uh, that was a fascinating story that, uh, that Lori told. I, I do something somewhat similar at the beginning of my classes when I talk about uh, historical vices and virtues, like what, what are we going to do in this class? And, and the virtues, some of the virtues that I talk about are things like charity and empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, one of the historian's essential um, tasks is to extend charity and empathy towards people in the past who no longer have any power to uh, advocate for their own views or, or defend themselves. And that applies to, as Laurie said, people who are despicable um, and, and to people who may not have had a voice in their own uh, historical context as well as to people who are admirable and had lots of agency and, and voice in their own uh, context. So mm-hmm. to me, that it, it gets at uh, what is essential to being, um, to being a historian, to doing history. It's, it's fundamentally about multiple perspectives. Yeah, my, I think I remember almost where I decided to be a historian was in... Um... Richard Kagan, it was in 1991. Richard Kagan taught class on Columbus and the New World Encounter. And he introduced us, and I immediately went and got Carlo Ginsburg's Cheese and the Worms because he used the illustration. That's like at that point, I was then I became besotted with microhistory and and that, that sort of that sort of thing. Um, he used the, I think Ginsburg is the one, and Kagan used this of the lenses in the optometrist's office, and they click, click, click. I remember Kagan probably standing on a chair, as he, as was his wont, because he was short, and uh, going click, click, click over his eyes, like as uh, the way that we look at the world through multiple lenses. And that was like the best, nicest way that people... Uh, it's a lot easier than saying Weltanschauung. Um, but then like the dizzying realization that the same person can have multiple perspectives, not only at different times in their life, which is hard to realize when you're 19, but then sometimes simultaneously um, you can do that. And then realizing that multiple perspectives is like one of those Russian dolls or an onion. There's a, so many ways and so many layers to go through multiple perspectives to, to mix up the thing, go from optometrists to onions. And in fact, I think we can talk about, uh, we've already touched on at least three different ways of thinking about multiple perspectives. One is uh, the various perspectives of evidence from the people that we're reading who are looking at an event that to which they're contemporary and how we interpret their lenses. One is the lenses of subsequent historians. And the third is, of course, our own lenses and our own perspectives and trying to sort through them. So I think we should probably begin with like a hard subject, which is Calhoun. So, you know, one of the probably top five difficult personalities in American history. Uh, (laughs) I don't think it's an exaggeration. Um, And sort of brooding eminences of the slaveocracy and so on. And no less, uh, and, and there is many multiple perspectives in his lifetime, maybe even more than for us. Could you explain that, Bob? Because I know you've thought a lot about this. Yeah. 
Well, I, I yeah, I'll try to be brief. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it was in one of the reviews of the book. I think Alan Gelzo wrote that there are some biographies that are impossible to write because of this quality that yeah. in trying to recover multiple perspectives uh, on somebody like Calhoun, um, you are never going to get to a bottom or a real uh person in in some senses because the perspectives are so divided and so mutually contradictory and mm -hmm. uh for me that one one without uh going into the the whole book i think one moment that illustrated that for me the best and i started the book with it was the moment that calhoun died and uh the reactions to his death um, which were um, kind of evenly split into adulation in places like South Carolina, that this, you know, uh, James Henley Thornwell set, uh, preached a sermon when Calhoun died, saying essentially, uh, it's, it's, it's probably a good thing that he died because we depended on him so much. We were not depending on God enough. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was this sort of godlike figure for, for some people. And then on the other side of it, of course, you had uh, abolitionists and uh, people and, and by that point unionists um, who sincerely believed that Calhoun was a, a, a sort of demonic figure uh, many, many people at the end of his life compared him to the figure of Satan in Milton's epic poem, uh, who was using his ingenuity and his obvious talent to work the destruction of the, of the Union and to defend something that was indefensible. Um, mm. So it, it those are, you know, that in a snapshot is kind of the difficulty, I think, when you're dealing with a figure like Calhoun. But in in one sense... I think it's only an exaggerated version of what what we're always dealing with as historians, which is yeah. uh, weighing who's saying this, what are their motives, how many perspectives are there, th those sorts of things. Yeah, and I think uh, when you're you're talking about that, I thought of when I first read James Henry Hammond's diary, and he's writing about Calhoun's death, and so publicly Hammond is giving the necessary elegiac statements uh, uh, that should come from Calhoun's lieutenant and follower and successor and disciple. In his diary, he's saying, Mr. Calhoun was such a terrible, basically he ruled with such an iron rod that basically there's no one to succeed him. And then of course his, his private thoughts, and this is, we're very, this is typical as we should say, this is what we should be used to and should expect um, with everybody. But but it but it gets at uh, at at the issue of historians having to constantly decipher the context in which yes. those perspectives are delivered, right? Because the same person in different contexts is saying very different things. Why? Yep. Because because Calhoun was a really powerful person, right? And so this, what you could say in public versus what you could say in private were two different things, right? And. Uh, this is where this takes us right since everything is connected to everything else. This takes us back to sourcing and why we say you know understand that the 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 funeral address in the South Carolina the newspaper is going to be different from what a person writes in their diary. And if we don't have the diary, then we still have, must be more all the more cautious with public utterances. Um, Lori uh, Eliza Pinckney is not such a polarizing figure in her own lifetime. Uh, nevertheless, you were also dealt with 
multiple perspectives on let's I'm thinking particularly of her work on indigo. Could you describe that and how you had to tease that apart? Yes. Yeah, so um, maybe just let me say first that as I was listening to Bob talk, I thought about the performance sure. that people present in the sources that are left behind. And so Calhoun being a very mm-hmm. public figure, I mean, I, I know a lot more <laughs> about the, um, you know, Washington and Jefferson and Madison and the leading members of the founding generation, but they are aware of their power at the time and they are aware of their his, like they, they will transcend history. And so everything they are writing mm-hmm. is a particular kind of a performance. And so when Eliza uh, Lucas Pinckney mm-hmm. uh, wrote about her life and the documents she left behind, of course, there's a performance. There's a performance in any, you know, letter, if, even in a in, in a diary, if the diary is going to be intimate and most of the 18th century diaries were not intended to be. But the performance is of a different sort, I think. And so there's a, a really like a gendered element to reading sources because you have to think about what women who crafted sources in the 18th and maybe even the early 19th century, the kind of cultural performance they're engaging in uh, versus powerful public mm-hmm. figures like Washington um, and Calhoun. So I felt that I got mm-hmm. to know a lot more uh, about Eliza Lucas Pinckney, I felt like I knew her more intimately uh, than I was able to know, you know, for example, when I wrote about uh, James Madison uh, or George Washington. To the particular issue of indigo, uh, there are two perspectives that the surviving sources offer on that. The first is hers while she's experimenting as a 17, 18-year-old young woman in South Carolina. And so she's writing about the frustration she has and the network that she is a part of in trying to make indigo a commercially viable crop in low country, South Carolina. Fast forward, you know, 30, 40 years, her son is helping David Ramsey in his first history of the American Revolution uh, and South Carolina's place in it. And he writes a narrative of his mother's leadership in creating indigo as a viable commercial crop for colonial South Carolina. And in that um, account, which has had a lot more historical weight than Eliza's letters, uh, a lot of the doubts are erased. And there's a sort of inevitability <laughs> to it. And, um, you know, a confidence that um, that really isn't present in her sources. And so I think to add to your, you know, Al, your list of things we have to discuss, it's like when the materials get created and how the perspective gets uh, intentionally crafted mm-hmm. over time and recrafted. Yeah, and then of course, uh, this gets the sort of the, 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 the ways that historians then change perspectives. Um, that of course, with in 1970s, with the rise of women's history, of course, that's going to be appropriated in a different way than even Charles Coatsworth Pinckney or the Pinckney's sons uh, had intended. So we're going to, I mean, because it seems to us like, uh, yeah, because you talk about that, the way that right. that was then appropriated uh, and the ways that, yeah. 
So in the 1970s, uh, she is, and even before then, uh, she's turned into a, a sort of a, sure. um, like a feminist hero. I mean, in there, there were radio programs about Eliza Pinckney in the 1920s. And so, you know, at that in that first wave of uh, women's rights advocacy, they're sort of searching the past for women who right. uh, had great accomplishments, you know, heavily calculated in terms of the things that men did. Right. So she was an agricultural innovator yeah. and a commercial planter. Um, and the, you know, the, Racial dimensions of that get erased a lot or slighted. I, I attempted very much to correct that. Um, but she's seen as a very heroic and uh, ennobling kind of figure. And so a caricature of her is invented that is celebratory. Um, and, and then it, you know, it, it uh, connects with people in really powerful ways. And I, I think Eliza Pinkney's the first woman inducted into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame, um, which is... That's what you said in your book. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's right. So, um, and that was in, I think that was in the 1980s or something. Uh, so uh -huh. uh, the, the people we study in the past bear the imprint of, you know, always what the present wants from them. Mm -hmm. Very much. So, um, Bob? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I just, I find that, that this part of it, I find fascinating. Of course, uh, historians, like, uh, we love the, the historiography angle on things. Um, my favorite moment like that, um, uh, like what Lori is talking about with Calhoun is that, um, <clears throat> you know, in the 1940s, Charles Wiltsey writes this massive three-volume biography of Calhoun that is just, uh, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a masterpiece. Um, and then 20 years later, when the book is republished in the 1960s and 70s, he writes a new preface to it. Hmm. And he, sa he basically apologizes. He says, I, I hope that people can read this um, now as a view of Calhoun that was written in the 1940s when, uh, when majoritarianism was one of the biggest, when populism, he's essentially describing populism, is one of the biggest threats to um, constitutional governments around the world. So, and Wiltsey lumps in, uh, you know, uh, Soviet Russia with FDR and the New Deal to say that these were all the threats to us at the time. And that I was writing Calhoun thinking about his constitutional thought. And then all of a sudden in the 1960s, he says, we, we discovered that there were still vestiges of slave society existing in the South. You know, the civil rights movement exposes this. And so now me looking at what I wrote 20 years later I now think that Calhoun's uh, defense of slavery is probably the most important thing about him in this new context, but that's not how I wrote the book. So when you read it, make sure you keep my original context in mind. I think it's just a fascinating. That is fast. That is as amazingly self-aware. Yeah, right. But, but as historians, I, I think like, I, I think that could easily happen with the book I wrote about Calhoun. It, it actually was happening as yeah, I was sure. writing it, I, you know, as I was writing the epilogue, we were in the middle of uh, 
the aftermath of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And, and, and I remember when you were right researching that, the Carolinaana, you were that was during the flag controversy, the end of the Charleston, yes. the Mother uh, Emanuel uh, I, church shooting. Right. I started um, writing the book yeah. essentially after the Mother Emanuel shootings. Yeah. Well, I still think that uh, that culturally is the context that that you know the, a lot of the reasons that I wrote wrote the book. But even by the end of the book, as we started to have you know uh, constitutional crises over elections, and mm-hmm. now people are talking really, really seriously about things like secession and nullification again, I'm really wondering whether in another five years the those constitutional sort of issues that Calhoun was dealing with will will rise to the surface again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit more about that? Because, of course, um, Calhoun is particularly well-trodden ground in terms of great interpretations. So I, I think we might have talked about this, probably not to a great extent during the when we talked about the book. But, of course, there is, of course, the there's Wiltsey, but there's also, of course, the Richard Hofstadter perspective on Calhoun, which for many people who haven't read Calhoun and who aren't don't do much antebellum stuff, that is – even if you haven't read Hofstadter, you heard about it from a professor somewhere that's kind of filled it into your head as the perspective. Then, of course, there's like a Gene Genovese perspective. And so you've got two, like, yeah, two former communists, um, sort of uh, with wildly different perspectives, uh, which have been influ- very influential in, at different times in, in different ways. Um, Gene less so, and Genovese less so, but still influential and, and pungently articulated. So could you talk about then that oftentimes I think the mistake people make, well, oftentimes the, 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 the way that you have to negotiate between the perspective of, of big mocker historians and how small that yeah, made you feel. I mean, I mean, one, one of the, you know, there are, there are streams of kind of historical interpretation on Calhoun that are, are somewhat constant. Um, so if you read Herman von Holst wrote one of the first academic biographies of Calhoun, it, it came out, I think it was in the 1880s, but certainly by the 1890s. Um, and Holst was a German academic who essentially, uh, his biography from the very beginning says essentially the, the, the important thing about Calhoun and his, uh, you know, everything in him was invested in a defense of slavery. And that is a, just an abomination, you know? And, and then at least within the United States, you had this uh, kind of uh, reconciliationist view of Calhoun uh, where he was emphasized as a really important constitutional thinker. And as somebody who tried in his own way to preserve the union and his defense of slavery was kind of pushed out, uh, pushed out of the picture. Um, so and people like Hofstadter are are putting that <clears throat> defense of slavery back in the picture. But Hofstadter and Genovese are both interested in Calhoun from that Marxist, semi-Marxist perspective um, as a as a somebody who thought deeply about class and politics, right. um, and. Of course, Hofstadter famously uh, calls Calhoun the, the marks of the master class. Uh, but he but he also says that Calhoun's constitutional thinking is uh, he, he says it has a little more than antiquarian interest to the modern mind. 
right? Um, which I guess is how it seemed to Hofstadter. Um, yeah. And then people like Genovese, of course, pick it up and are interested in Calhoun as uh, as a defender of a pre-modern, pre-capitalist uh, system. And they're both coming at it from kind of Marxist perspectives. Yeah, but I mean, kind of proto-Gramscian and almost yeah, a, little, a little. For, yeah. for Genovese. For Genovese, yeah. 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 Um, but by the 1990s, uh, you had, um, uh, people like Irving Bartlett, uh, John Niven picking up Calhoun, um, and, and really portraying him, you know, that was kind of one of the high watermarks, I think of, of kind of, they were, they were writing in the wake of a new nationalist consensus in U.S. history and, uh, both of them portrayed Calhoun as, you know, this American uh, figure, but one who had been passed by, by history. You know, the, mm-hmm. his his ideas weren't that important anymore. He had isolated himself. He was a sectionalist and a dissenter and a forefather of the Confederacy, um, and and that was before we really started reckoning with the history of slavery again in in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So so. It had a, they each have their own perspective. Yeah. Laurie, do you want have anything to add from sort of your own work? I'm, I'm thinking, of course, about the uh, founders as fathers, uh, where you were, de- of course, th- there you're in a very deep interpretive thicket. Um, Virginia Constitutional Convention, too. Well, I, I guess um, I wasn't really thinking about that. I, I can. But as, as Bob was talking, I was thinking about the difference between uh, the 18th century and the 19th century, I guess 18th century South Carolina sure. and 19th century South Carolina, um, where, you know, at least in the period Bob is studying, there's this robust pushback against the institution of slavery. And it is at the forefront of many sort of religious, political, social conversations. Eliza Pinckney, for all of her life, she died in uh, 1791. I think 91 or 92, um, for all of her life, um, she simply erased the institution of slavery in her life. I mean, sometimes she would mention a person who was carrying a letter. Sometimes she would mention a person who is misbehaving. uh, Or uh, sometimes she would mention the market value of enslaved people. Um, But there's almost no one in 18th century South Carolina until the 1770s, 80s, and 90s, and very few then, who are requiring of uh, enslavers any sort of public consideration or justification, rationalization, defense of what they are doing. And so I think to write about um, white people in early 19th century South Carolina is fundamentally different in terms of the evidence and the perspectives that um, that you can chart versus the perspectives you have to imagine uh, when you're writing about the, mm. uh, the 18th century. And of course, it's very late in the lives of you know, thinking back to the uh, leading founders, uh, leading members of the founding generation, it's very late in, well, not their lives, but I guess in their, um, it's very late in the 18th century when they begin to come to grips with um, questions about the efficacy and morality uh, of slavery. And there too, they hope for 
erasures, which is what you see in the Constitution. You know, the the institution of slavery perpetuated, defended, and extended, but the word slave and slavery um, intentionally avoided. I'm, um, I think we're at the point where uh, the cynic then says, multiple perspectives. This is the way the historian uh, gets to talk about things that no one can agree on. Um, and you get that from, you know, first year students who want to avoid work. Uh, you get that from, you know, but at least <laughs> in, like in the early nineties, we got that reading history and theory. Um, we got that, that was sort of, that was the thing. How can we tell these stories about the past? Uh, from perspectives that um, no no one can agree on their perspectives. So we had a, a, a short moment of, of radical relativism, which was kind of bracing and exciting for those of us who are like very young then. Um, but it didn't do a whole lot to perpetuate the profession. I think that was quickly realized. And there was a lot of sort of a, sort of a new consensus. I'm thinking of the Appleby, uh, the book, um, thinking I've got around here somewhere, uh, the, the three presidents of the AHA came out with a book about thinking about, about history. Yeah, you've got it, I'm sure. We've all got it somewhere. Um, but uh, could we just address that briefly? I mean, how do we know? What it comes down to is that some multiple perspectives, some perspectives are better than others. Um, how do we address the fact that multiple perspectives are possible? How do you handle that when when a, when a clever student who means well, pushes you on this. Lori? Oh, goodness. I was hoping you'd ask Bob first. <laughs> <laughs> Seniority. Seniority has its privileges. <laughs> well, I, he's, not, he's not the Walker, Texas Ranger of, of professor of history at, at, at Baylor. When he is, like, I'll ask him. We'll flip a coin. <laughs> okay. So I guess I'm going to – maybe I'll just fall back on something that happened uh, last week in my own class. Um, we read, we read, um, the transcripts from the depositions from, uh, the Boston massacre trials of Thomas Preston. And I then had students write, uh, you know, do short reaction writing about who was to blame for that loss of life. Like who's responsible and, uh, or they could write about whether they thought the jury got it right in acquitting. Thomas Preston. And and so let me just this yeah. sounds like a great exercise. So let me let me let me so you did this, you read the stuff, they read it individually and they wrote like 5 minutes and then they all finished and then they all had an opinion because they had written it in class. Yeah, well they wrote for 20 minutes. So, yeah, but they had 20 minutes, all right. Yeah, so they had they had read, you know, 15 or 20 accounts, short accounts of uh, what happened in the Boston okay. massacre. And so, fantastic. you know, I use that to talk about multiple perspectives and also the opportunities sure. and the challenges of evidence, including eyewitness evidence. But then as I read the papers, I saw that sort of <laughs> multiple perspectives being duplicated in the student writing. So the pre, I have three pre-law uh -huh. students and they wrote about probable cause. I have an engineering student who sort of visualized the whole Boston Common and thought through, you know, how how the events could have worked and 
you know, where Preston was standing and so on and so forth. And then the history majors all sort of fell back on context and said, well, you know, you to, to really understand what went down, <laughs> you've got to understand. And so we had a good conversation about perspectives. And and then when we left, I, I didn't have a clever student say, uh well, now what are we supposed to do with all this? But as we left, I thought to myself, now what in the world am I supposed to do with all of this? Because if the evidence is variable and unreliable and different people read it in different ways, you know, what, what is history supposed to be? And, um, I don't know. I, I, I like the questioning. I like the conversations. I like the learning, the definitive answers, the further I get into my career, the more they um, elude me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bob. Uh, that's great. I'm so glad you made Lori go first. It makes me want to be teaching in order to do that exact exercise. It's a great, it's, yeah. the, it's, the, it's the perfect event to use for that, for a multiple yeah. perspectives. That is. Um, so I, I I think we can make the you know I think we can make the the kind of um, <clears throat> you know the linguistic turn critique of multi perspectives, uh, which would be that there's there's no there there right that, that eventually you have so many perspectives how do you choose between them and and it becomes crippling, and um, that is of course what the the idea of qualified objectivity that Appleby and and mm-hmm. um, and all the others we're talking about. Um, I think in one of my graduate classes that I teach here at Baylor, the historian's craft class, I have them read uh, Michael Johnson's article on Denmark Vesey in the William yes. and Mary Quarterly. Back and to then, South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, and then I have them read all the the roundtable of the forum of responses to that article from other historians of AC. And in, inevitably, right, what happens is Johnson convinces them, or mostly convinces them. And then once they read the forum articles, they are convinced back in the other direction, <laughs> which are both those, these are literally legitimate responses because these are powerfully argued, um, ev- from evidentiary bases, um, um, arguments, but in the end you have to, you have to pick a side, right? You, you've, you've seen the evidence, you've Do you heard really? all the arguments. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't in the class, which is nice, <laughs> but, but but for instance, when I, when I, uh, you know, when, when you write, you know, if you write your textbook of South Carolina, Walter Edgar had to take a stance on it. Right. Or mm-hmm. when I wrote the Calhoun book, I, you can note the, uh, you can note the doubts about it or things like that, but it, you have to kind of decide whether you think this actually happened or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me that that's an example where we are arguing about evidence and you have to decide who's making the stronger arguments while conceding that there there are some you know there's grounds for doubt or grounds for uh, for for another view uh, there. Um, I also think that a lot of times you know in that case you're talking about whether an event happened or not. But the other the other uh, way to think about multi-perspectivalism is that uh, oftentimes when you dig into it, people are talking 
uh, about two different elements of the same thing. And once you get what what actually people are talking about, it becomes a little clearer. So an example of this I, that I use mm-hmm. is uh, is nullification, is Calhoun's theories about nullification, right? That when Calhoun writes those and puts them into practice, uh, there are a lot of people who um, accuse him of being anti-democratic, right? Of trying to frustrate majoritarian rule and figure out a way to engineer minority rule at the, at the national level. Well, if you're James Madison or Andrew Jackson and your concern is, uh, the authority of the federal government and the project of democracy at the federal level, then there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, Calhoun engineers a theory that would have essentially, by the way he thought about it, it would have allowed uh, a state, if they could just convince a quarter of the other states to go along with them, they could defy any federal law that they wanted to. But whether... Calhoun's way of thinking about this, though, and the people who would have defended it and the way that he constructed it was that he was he he didn't he never saw it as anti-democratic. He saw it as protecting a space for democracy further down the the food chain in states, in local elections and things like that, so that self-determination could still operate without being overruled. Uh, further up the food chain. And so, you know, there's still an impasse there. You still have to make a value judgment about which thing is worth preserving, but it's, it, it's a disagreement more than it is a uh, two irreconcilable interpretations of the same thing, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. No, I mean it's perfect. I think that's I think that's spot on. Laurie, do you have anything to well, add to that? Uh, yeah, I think um, th- that is a, the uh, William Mary Quarterly roundtable uh, on that is fantastic. Also, <laughs> William Mary Quarterly did a roundtable on my I think it's Belial, Michael Belial's book Arming America, which came out about twenty mm-hmm. years ago, um, and there was a huge controversy surrounding it. Um, and I don't want to get into the details of that, but the Quarterly did a roundtable, and. Um, so, you know, there's lots of room for arguing and disagreeing about this, that, and the other interpretation. But I remember, I believe it was Gloria Maine wrote a short piece about probate records and what probate records looked like and what information they included and what information they did not include. And I remember thinking her, mm-hmm. her mastery of probate records from, you know, the 18th century uh, and early America generally and what she was able to convey w- was to me devastating to the Belial interpretation because she had the insight from her expertise that said, okay, what, what you have claimed these probate records show is not what a probate record shows and, and not what they look like. And so, you know, I, I, um, I think sometimes we do have to intercede in the multiple perspectives and say that there is expertise and insight and scholarly knowledge that tips the scales, you know, one direction or the other. Yeah, th- that was just basic seat of your pants experience um, that she had looked through that many probate records and she knew about them. Whereas for most of our listeners, a probate record is a word. That's just that's a thing. But yeah, it's an inventory. That's a th- that if they're if we're lucky, they know it's an inventory. 
Um, but uh, I haven't looked at hundreds of them myself. I, I, I resonate with that example. Well, okay, thousands. Um, I guess I should say this is where um, – Bob, do you want – well, I, I just wanted to chime in and say that this is what, what Laurie said is a great observation that yeah. um, I am prone to seeing both sides of everything, but uh, that that can be a that can be a way to evade or to uh, kind of not make decisions. Right. And when you have somebody that, that has that level of expertise or that knows the sources really, really well and can make that kind of a rebuttal or weigh in on one side or the other, um, then, you know, that, that should absolutely be, uh, uh, definitive yeah. there, there, there comes a point where multi multiple perspectives can be evasion, I think. Mm -hmm. It can. And this is also the problem sometimes is when those of us, uh, Sometimes the people who are reviewing a book just don't know enough. So I'm not going to name any name. And this is, can be true even for people who are more or less in the same subfield. But they do political history and they haven't read probate records, for example. Um, they know a lot about people's attitude towards guns, but they don't know about probate records. Just to continue with that. I'm thinking of a, a recent uh, phenomenal book in which I realized that he was misquoting, he was dropping off sentences from the Federalist. Uh, I don't know the Federalist that well, <laughs> but I had read it recently enough that I recognized, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, and uh, in, in, in such a way that I, I still feel very a little bit bad about that book. I feel like that's, it, was, it, it was almost, it, it had to be purposeful. Um, so I'm very, that makes me very suspicious of the, of the author. Um, there's a, there are new books out, say, for example, I'm thinking of, well, when a new book comes out, I'm speaking in generalities here, uh, when that claims to have new evidence, say from a certain type of source, then when someone reviews the book, I want to know that they've gone back and looked at that source. And I, and I want that even in like a Wall Street Journal or New York Times book review, actually. I, want, I don't want to have sort of vague generalities about um, a history book. Oh, yes, this is a very interesting new perspective. No, I want them to go back and look at the Pennsylvania Gazette of April 1775 to tell me, you know, what's being described. Or I, I, want, I, want, I want them to, I want, if, if they're a scientist, I would want to see their test tubes. I want to see their equipment and I want to look at their notebook. And I think that history deserves just the same dignity of people looking at our no lab notebooks and checking out our um, experimentation procedure. So this, uh, <clears throat> this came home to me recently. Uh, there, there's been this kind of floating in the ether uh, for the last few months, right? Uh, and I don't want to introduce uh, current politics into this too much, but just Certainly for the not. sake of this illustration, I, I have to make one that this claim that, that Calhoun invented the filibuster, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and <laughs> I, I, well, I had kind of seen this. I wasn't, I wasn't really paying attention to it. And I assumed that it was, that it was a, a claim that kind of, uh, the the filibuster was a was a, an instantiation of the theory of the concurrent majority, right? The idea that mm -hmm. the minority should have a veto 
on any significant legislation. And at that level, I was like, well, yeah, that's that's kind of accurate. Calhoun's theory is a it, it is it is a, a striking kind of similarity to Calhoun's idea about the minority veto. So at that level, like, yeah, that's fine. He didn't actually invent it. But then when I actually read the the book that this came out of, I just got curious about it because I saw it repeated so much and read the book. And I and I found that this uh, um, guy who wrote the book actually did claim that Calhoun invented the filibuster. Really? In, literally. It's a, in a book. He said this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's, yeah. It's literally in the book. Someone tell and, Cicero. He wants his money back. <laughs> well, and and so th- in that case, there is clearly a, a, hist- a you know historical evidence, um, an argument that no, it, you know there there is a perspective in which that claim might be accurate, right? In in one sense, but when you talk about the actual invention of something like the filibuster, that's that's not accurate. I mean, there's no evidence for that. Um, yeah. So in that case, in that case, I was kind of willing to grant you know, the benefit of the doubt based on perspective. Um, But when the rubber hit the road, the evidence just isn't, isn't there for something like that. Yeah. This would probably be the time where we could, I mean, what you're, so yeah. So sometimes this is a lot simpler, multiple perspectives, teasing them apart are a lot simpler than that we make out. Because I I, am very much on your side. I have believed many different things about Denmark Fessy's rebellion usually after reading an essay about it and you know and that that of course that round table is like was like in, inducing whiplash in me uh, intellectual whiplash um and that from timidity and 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 probably some some measure of intellectual cowardice and also it helps that I don't have to respond to that um but uh when we start to actually do some some sort of see the pants history work then these things can be a lot simpler um, uh, than we often make them out to be. Um, I will show the pictures, you know, the one that looks like um, a young woman going to the ball, but the same picture is also of an old lady with like a babushka with a headscarf on or the duck that's a rabbit. Of course, the problem in history is that there aren't just those two alternatives. There are three or four or five or 18. And that's what those pictures never convey. But, you know, on close examination, of those 18, maybe 15 are not really up to, up to, you know, the challenge of, of giving a perspective on an event. Um, should we, anything more to add to this or are we, uh, do you want to add anything more to this conversation about multiple perspectives? Because I think we've covered like logic and ethics very nicely in just in the last five or six minutes. I guess I would only add that I think um, as historians, we have a a particular civic responsibility to um, refrain from validating all perspectives as equally valuable, um, especially when it comes to like contemporary political usages of the past. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can be, you know, a a fraught territory to enter in our classes. But I I think we have an obligation to do that. Um, You know, as you you were talking, Al, about uh, you wanted to see the doctors um, or the the scientist (laughs) data. I was thinking about the people who, you know, are going to do their own research about uh, vaccines Uh and epidemiology. And again, like Bob, I don't want to get too far into the present, but 
but there is a difference um, between uh, uh, Gloria Maine and someone who Googles um, gun ownership in colonial America. And there's a difference between right. the NIH and someone who's, um, you know, reading um, an, a post on Facebook. And so part of what we have mm-hmm. to do in our um, in our teaching and, and by teaching, I mean, our writing, our public talks uh, and mm-hmm. uh, classrooms, like all the ways in which historians uh, try and share our knowledge. I think we have to both validate multiple perspectives, but also, um, you know, teach the skills of evaluating those perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and to, and to encourage critical judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. I would just, I I would echo, I was thinking um, exactly the same thing that Lori was saying that part of the work that we have to do as historians and part of what I try to communicate to students a lot of times is um, that work of sifting the different perspectives, evaluating where these are coming from, who's making them, how, how good of a vantage point these people have or how much information they had in making these judgments. And that that is really hard work, right? People, we don't like doing that. It's much easier to say, that all perspectives are valid mm-hmm. um, or that just, or to just pick one and say, well, I like that one. So that I'm going to run with that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, but, it, fits, yeah. it fits with my priors. So I'm going to go with that. And then, right. and then the point, the point of actually finding a persuasive enough perspective that threatens your priors and going through that sort of intellectual trauma that that can induce, especially for like the second year graduate student. Absolutely. I don't know why I pulled that out of there, but it happens. Happened to me. Yeah. Um, well, I think the other Lori thing- talked about uh, the Boston oh. Massacre as a team. Oh, Lori, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as, as Bob was talking, the other thing I think that happens to us as historians that make, that make it hard for us to move forward with the sifting is, you know, as Bob laid out earlier, like this history of historians- sort of getting it wrong and we don't want to like be on the record <laughs> sifting out a perspective that later on is <laughs> maybe the most weighty one. So it's, the, it's tough. It is. And, it gets, and this is where you I mean, Bob, you began by talking about charity and humility. And then there's also courage. This gets us into like some really deep emotional, uh, level of, of, of things of intellectual virtues. Uh, uh, it takes us very deep into them and those are all, yeah, this is all very hard. Um, it's hard to, you know, one of the things I've always noticed with upper level students, uh, is the difficulty they have of citing other perspectives because they don't want to cite other perspectives other than their own, um, or give them a fair shot. Um, and that's hard to, it's hard for me to do. So I, I understand why it's hard for them to do. Um, it's, it requires a certain humility and that's difficult to achieve and fake. 
Well, I I agree. I mean, I, I was I was just thinking. Gosh, I don't really have anything to add to that. I'll just say, uh, I'll just say I I agree. Um, and I think I think what Lori said is is absolutely right. That there is um, there's a reticence to making judgments. Um, I I think this is actually a, a fascinating. Um, there are if you want to talk about kind of personality types and things like that, mm-hmm. like we all know people who have no problem making these judgments and who are kind of actually, this is who Calhoun was, right? One of the right. things that I realized very early on that was very, that, that kind of I found very difficult to understand about Calhoun is how preternaturally certain he was about his opinions and uh, uh, how, how self-evident he thought they were. Right. And I am not like that. I'm the exact opposite of yeah. that. I can I can I can make an argument for the opposite side until doomsday. <laughs> I, yeah, um, I, would, I would say that that was that was a characteristic of his time rather than ours. But I've been on Twitter. So I know that's right. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it, it absolutely still, it absolutely still exists. And so there is a um, I like I like that what you said about courage that. There is um, there is a, a level of courage involved in making after considered considering the evidence and, and weighing those perspectives. You do actually eventually have to make uh, judgments about these things. I think, um, but you have to hold those lightly, right? I mean, yes. yeah. You, you there, there's this very very hard balance to coming to a firm, well argued conclusion but also realizing that there are good counter arguments and that other people can hold other perspectives. And that's something uh, that's difficult to do. This is taking us very nicely into sort of the next conversation, which I mean to record, which is awareness of limits, um, which is also very hard for, to do for anyone. It's like what, and I, sometimes I ask this question, um, you know, what on the, on the podcast, not always, uh, but what, new evidence would change your mind. Uh, and I, wor- I worry about people who, historians for whom new evidence would not at least change their mind or their, their at least their pers- certainly their perspective in some way. Um, so Lori's talked about the Boston Massacre uh, e- example, um, which I, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm sure she will include it so we can put it in the show notes um, so that people can, can steal it. Because you know, good teaching ideas are for stealing. Um, Bob, do you have any exercise that you have um, that you've used uh, for teaching multiple perspectives? And Lori, do you have any other ones after Bob's had his shot to describe? I'm, I'm curious. Sort of other any other sort of pro tips from the classroom? Well, it, it's not an exercise, but uh, the 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 thing that I thought about when Lori was talking about that, which sounds great, is how I how I try to teach the perspectives on the constitution and slavery. So the, mm-hmm. the sort of, um, uh, when, when we talk, when it, I do the U S survey, uh, and we talk about the constitutional convention and we talk about the role of slavery in there. And then I, uh, over the course of the semester, I kind of, one of the, one of our running themes is kind of this argument about is the constitution a pro slavery document or is it an anti-slavery document? And 
so we kind of touch on that in in various um, places. But getting back, I mean, one of the things that is most interesting to me, getting back to what you were talking about, about changing your mind, Al, is the figure that I use in that as a thread is Frederick Douglass, of course, yeah, right? So. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, who starts off uh, his life as an abolitionist, um, basically in the Garrisonian camp of the Constitution as a pact with the devil, um, right? We we shouldn't even engage in politics to do this. And of course, famously changes his mind and, and plays a role in convincing Abraham Lincoln uh, that that uh, the constitution is an anti-slavery document. And so I think in that, uh, uh, what I, what I hope that gives students the permission to do right is to consider evidence and, and change their minds. Um, I also think that it, what it shows is that uh, you know, that, that conversation about is the constitution pro-slavery or anti-slavery um that history and politics actually had a huge amount to do with, uh, with whether that was true or not, right? Human actions actually, and, and arguments actually made a difference in what, whether that was true. If you had chosen, if you freeze it at any one moment in time, you might be able to make one argument or the other, but, but as you unfold it, uh, you know, there's a lot of, what we used to call agency involved in whether that question is true or not. And, and Lincoln's Lyceum address is the most powerful political speech, which is actually a historical essay. Uh, right. wait, wait, History. I mean, yeah. Yeah. His, and, and, you know, on the other side of that, of course, is somebody like Calhoun who uses history all the time to argue that, mm. that slavery is protected by the Constitution. It's one of the fundamental right. links of the original union. And um, so the, the, the arguments over whether that are, is true um, actually has an influence over whether or not that is the case yeah, or not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much a snake's eating its tail kind of. There's the, there's, there's, there is, it's the, the historical arguments are part of the political reality and the political reality is part of the historical arguments and around and around it goes. Right. Um, Lori, do you have any other sort of suggestions for teaching multiple perspectives in the classroom? Um, well, one thing I do the first day of class uh, when I teach the world history survey or the U.S. history survey is I bring in 20 images and I have the students work mm. in, you know, groups of four or five, and they have to pick out the 10 most important uh, for, you know, the classes we're going to cover it. Huh. And then uh, I use that to talk about how, you know, I chose the images, just like I create the structure of the class. And so history is a lot about choices and points of view and perspectives. And mm. much of the class is mine. Um, but then, you know, they they have to be active learners in their own experiences. And then, you know, they almost always in the U.S. history class, they pick, they pick the Declaration of Independence, you know, uh, mm. wh- whatever else they pick out of the group, every group. I think this I know this term, every group pick the Declaration of Independence. And then I say, what are we supposed to learn about the Declaration of Independence and whose perspective are we supposed to read it from? Jefferson's. And, you know, then I talk about what he thought about it. Um, and who do, who does the declaration matter to and who does it not matter to? Um, and so, you know, I like that exercise because 
you know, it, there's a lot of possibilities with it, but also it just starts the students talking to one another and thinking about the ways in which they have an investment in um, what they learn about the past and, and they get to shape what they learn about the past mm -hmm. and what they don't learn. Mm -hmm. I love showing pictures and getting responses from them in groups about what they think is going on in the picture. Usually Matthew Brady's Civil War pictures. Um, I have yet to find anyone who recognizes Charleston and Richmond as uh, in the pictures of the aftermath of the Civil War, That's, which is really interesting to me. They always think it's Europe in World War II. Um, and so, of course, there, there is a multiple, there's a different kind of perspective to see that things like that once happened in America uh, is very distant for them. And so that's one of the things I can tease out from there. Or there's that famous picture of three uh, Confederates after Gettysburg. Uh, you know, the one with the, the fellows who got his hands and his, his galluses and they're all standing around. Everyone usually thinks they're cowboys uh, or loggers. They don't associate that, you know, because they're not in uniform, really. Um, and, uh, it's interesting, the stories then that people, the perspectives then people will, uh, and the meaning that people will impute to an image. Um, and by having them do that early, we can then, I think, I think it's especially maybe for this generation, maybe for any generation, you can go then from the image to text, perhaps to then see the way that we also do that with text. I, I think that <clears throat> as I was just thinking about this, as it relates to teaching, I mean, I, I, I find that very commonly the um, the new thing uh, that a lot of students encounter is that there are different perspectives in history, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, oftentimes they they come into uh, the classroom. Like when I started teaching the, you know, when I started teaching the survey, I realized pretty quickly that students were coming into the classroom with a, a, a narrative of American history. And frequently, we're not introduced to the idea that historians argue about things. Right. Yeah, I, I should. <laughs> um, yeah. And so simply introducing the idea that there are multiple uh, perspectives among historians about events, that that's one level at which I, yes, I think huge. we have to introduce our students to. Um, but also even, you know, that historical actors themselves who are engaged in these events had different perspectives on what, uh, on what was going on. My, my favorite, um, thing to assign to students when we're talking about, uh, the constitution is Mercy Otis's, Mercy Otis Warren's takedown of the constitution, which is this brilliant piece of writing that, you know, students who, who come in with a, uh, with a certain narrative, they're, they're predisposed to think that the constitutional convention was, uh, you know, this, this, uh, you know, huge achievement in, in American history. And I'm not cynically trying to disabuse them of that notion, but I want them to know that there were really smart people at the time, like Mercy Otis Warren, who fundamentally disagreed with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Lori, any final thoughts? No, I just have found this such a great conversation, and I'm teaching David Wallstriker's 
um, book uh, in two weeks in my survey class. And so I'm going to use Bob's exercise about how, how could that book be completely rewritten to argue that the Constitution is an anti-slavery Constitution. So I, made a, I made a note about that and I circled it. So thank you. I love it. I love it. Well, my, my guests today have been Lori Glover of the John Francis Bannon Endowed Chair in the Department of History at St. Louis University and Bob Elder, Associate Professor of History at Baylor University. Thank you, both of you, for once again being part of Historically Thinking. And I should say, just a little behind the scenes, after an hour and two minutes of recording, this is our fifth attempt to record this podcast. So five times lucky probably should be the new Historically Thinking t-shirt, which would only appeal to three of us. <laughs> it, was, it was great to be here, Al. Thanks. It was. Thank you so much for including me. Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>